Let us pray. Grant, O Lord, that the course of this world may be so peaceably ordered by your providence that your church may joyfully serve you in quiet confidence and godly peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. This is a reading from the book of Hosea. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Okay, good. I'm always aware when uh, one of the um, challenges of having uh, three readings on a Sunday is sometimes there's one reading and you think, ooh, I want to hear what Christian's going to say about that or whoever's preaching, and that's not the one I'm preaching on. So if you're wanting to hear about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a very challenging verse, I'm sorry, we're not in Mark uh, today. Uh, but I encourage you to study up on that verse, and if you have questions about it, as I shared in the first service, I'm gone this week, so you can follow up with Pete. He loves, uh, he actually really does love hard Bible questions. So that's, yeah, yeah, Josh is around. That's right. So anyway, so they both actually enjoy um, uh, wrestling through uh, hard verses. So, uh, but um, we are in Second Corinthians. So I want to begin with. Um any kids that are here that want to participate through drawing, um, or adults as well, uh, a drawing prompt, which we're um, doing this summer as we have different iterations of, of children's ministry as kids are here. Um, and so today, if you would like to draw, again, I'm going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. As you just heard when that reading was read, there's a lot about comfort um, in that reading. That word is repeated again and again. And so kids, and again, adults as well, if you'd like to, I want you to draw something that comes to mind when you hear the word comfort. What do you associate with comfort? And again, adults, even if you're not drawing, maybe you can think about this as well. I hear the word comfort. What comes to mind? What do I think? What brings me comfort? Maybe what's comfortable? What uh, sort of represents comfort? All right, so that's your assignment. Having shared that, let me uh, share a situation where maybe for some, at least, it causes discomfort. And that's, and I'm sure many of you experience this, where you're with a, a group of people. Maybe this is a group that had never gathered together. Or not everyone knows each other. And so the time of the group begins and someone says, all right, I want everyone to go around and introduce themselves. And so uh, why don't you tell us your name and just tell us some things about yourself. Um, and now I've actually been guilty of doing this to people, which is unfair because I'm one of those people when I hear that and I'm given that assignment, I immediately have this moment of anxiety of, okay, what do I share, right? And especially if you're like the first person that's to share, then you, at least for me, really feel the panic because it's like, am I going to share too much? Am I going to say too little? Am I going to be not personal enough? If I'm going to overshare and be too personal, am I going to try to be funny and no one's going to laugh? That's very likely. Um, am I going to come across as facetious? I was just talking with someone after the first service. I remembered the first time I was part of this mission school, the first night we had to go around and introduce ourselves. And I was the first, and I said some jokey things about who I was. The next person got up and shared their entire testimony of coming to faith. And everyone was crying. And I was like, oh man, I'm the shallow guy that just shared a joke in my introduction. So uh, again, it's probably not something I should overthink so much, but when we do introduce ourselves, we are thinking about, right, what do I want to tell people about myself? Um, and there is a certain element of, 
what do I value? What's important to me, right? As I say, this is who I am, right? We do communicate. This is what I want you to know about me. This is what's important to me. When I when we get together some, with someone for the first time, right? The things you share are usually what you most value and what's most important to tell others. And I want to think about this because we are beginning a series on 2 Corinthians. Um, we will be in it throughout the summer. Uh, we actually won't finish 2 Corinthians. It's a long book. There's a lot going on. We'll probably get to about chapter 8 um, this summer, and then we'll revisit um, the end of um, uh, 2 Corinthians at another time. Uh, but basically today we have the introduction. And we have Paul, in a sense, introducing himself to the church in Corinth. Now, I say in a sense because he knows the church in Corinth, right? Second Corinthians, you know, tips us off that they, they know each other, and he knows them. But he actually is introducing himself in a way. And the way that he's introducing himself and the way he's introducing this letter, I believe, is very important, actually, to understanding this letter, very important to understanding Paul's mission and the, the, one of the most important themes that he's wanting to communicate to the church in Corinth. So we can actually look at this introduction that Paul is giving, and we can ask, what do we learn about Paul, but what do we learn about God, right? In his introduction, he is wanting to communicate something very important about the Lord, and what do we learn about the church in Corinth, and in particular, what he wants the church in Corinth to understand about themselves. So even in his introduction, he's actually saying, this is true about you, um, and we can take that to heart, and we can say, this is true about us, right? Yes, this is a, a letter for a specific congregation but this is also a letter, again, for all of us. Um, I'm struck, actually, when Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints that are in the whole of Achaia, right? He's uh, basically saying, yes, this is for the specific church in Corinth, but it's for more than that. It's for all the saints, right? Maybe he didn't have Minnesota in his mind, right? But as we read this, we know Paul was speaking to a specific situation in Corinth, but he knew what he was sharing was for a broader group, right? This is um, key to understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ, and so before we get into the passage, let me just give a little bit of an introduction to 2 Corinthians, because um, uh, uh, it's important actually to understand some of the dynamics. There are a lot of um, interpersonal dynamics going on between Paul and the church in Corinth, and there's a lot of history that they share that's actually really helpful when we're studying this book to understand some of those things. Um, now, Paul helped start the church in Corinth, right? He came to Corinth. Corinth was a major metropolitan area, a really important area in the world um, at that time. Um, in the book of Acts, it tells us about him traveling traveling there, starting a church there, and he's there for one and a half years. Um, so he really gets to know the people in Corinth. He invests a lot in them before he travels on. After he's traveled from Corinth, um, we know he sent a first letter uh, to the church in Corinth with your thinking, oh, 1 Corinthians. No, um, that was not 1 Corinthians. That is a letter we do not have. Um, he sent a letter to them, probably gave some sort of directions to them, some sort of encouragement to them. Um, it seems that they sent a letter back in addition to sending a letter back, Paul got some reports um, from the church in Corinth. And the letter they sent and the reports he got back were very concerning to him. Right? He basically found out there's some problems in the church in Corinth. Right? And that's then the second letter he wrote in response to those problems is 1 Corinthians. If you've read 1 Corinthians, um, you know, or just if you've heard it quoted, right, you know there were a lot of problems in the, in the church, and he addresses them. So he addresses spiritual gifts, he addresses communion, he addresses division, right, and unity in the church. All these things, because they were happening in Corinth, he addresses them. We're blessed by that because we learn a ton. But again, the book of 1 Corinthians has a lot of correction in it. Beautiful, awesome teaching, but it was growing out of actually problems in the church. So he sends that letter, then um, at some time later he visits them again, comes back to them, and we know that that visit did not go well. 
It's actually called in 2 Corinthians, the painful visit, right? And so not a good visit where actually he experienced that there were many in the church that had become opposed to him. They were basically rejecting him as a, an apostle, as a leader over them. And so it was a very hard time. Um, and uh, we know then after that visit, he sent another letter to them, not 2 Corinthians yet, but this letter is referred to in 2 Corinthians as the severe letter. Um, again, not a good sign when it's called the severe letter, where basically there must have been some sort of ongoing correction and perhaps even more severe correction. Now, this letter was so severe that actually Paul speaks about being sorry after he sent it, like wondering, was he too harsh for them? to them? Um, but again, they needed correction. There was really rebellion against him and against the gospel that he had taught them. Um, he then gets a report from Titus, um, his ministry partner, who tells him, hey, folks in Corinth, actually many of those who opposed you are actually turning back. And they're repenting, actually, of the rebellion against you. And, you know, they're honoring your leadership. So Paul is delighted to hear that. But at the same time, he also hears that there are these um, false apostles, as he calls them, and we hear that in Second Corinthians, who were influencing the church. Probably were not part of the church in Corinth, but were influencing it and basically speaking against Paul and again, false apostles were teaching things that were not true about the gospel. Probably it was a mix of some things that were true, some things that were not. And so there's ongoing tensions. Things are getting better between him and Corinth, and we can see that um, in this letter. But there's ongoing concerns. Okay, so I, I share all that again, some of the emotion. And when you read Second Corinthians, I love Second Corinthians. Part of the reason I love it because it is such an emotional book, right? There's a lot of feeling. You see his incredible love for um, the Corinthian church, and you see the way his heart's been broken uh, by uh, this church. But a lot of what happens in Second Corinthians is Paul defending his role as an apostle, defending himself as their teacher. And sometimes that can actually be a challenge in saying this book because you can feel a little bit like, Man, this guy just keeps defending himself, right? It's never really helpful to hear someone defend themselves. But in Paul's case, it's actually really important. Because it's not just about his own integrity, although that's important. It's about his calling as an apostle, right? Basically, in defending himself, he's making it clear, God called me to share the good news with you. And if you reject me, you're rejecting the very message that I've sent. You're rejecting the Lord who has sent me. And so there's actually a lot riding on them honoring his leadership, and so that's important as you read through the book, as you hear him defending himself, he's teaching us about what does it mean to be a, a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a servant of Christ? What does it mean to honor those who God has called and is ministering through? And what does it mean to honor, right, the, the preaching of the gospel, um, the truth that he's sharing? Okay, and so we see some of that, again, right from the beginning of the book. So let's begin first. What is Paul teaching them about the Lord? Right? That's always a good place to begin. How, how is he teaching by the Lord in his introduction? Well, we see in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 3, um, pretty repetitive, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So basically that's the beginning sort of a, a doxology, we could call it, this extended sort of praise to God. And actually, the form that it takes is very similar to synagogue prayers um, at that time. So for those in the church in Corinth who were Jewish and had grown up in the synagogue, they would have probably read this prayer and said, that sounds very familiar. It has sort of the same form and the same cadence um, as the prayers that they would have said. But significantly, this prayer is to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so Paul is making it very clear in this prayer, right? The God we worship, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, right? the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is, we would say, you know, the Old Testament God is the God they worship. There's only one God, 
And that's who he's praising. But again, praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in sort of the, the form of the synagogue prayers, he's making clear, right? I'm not introducing to you a new God. But God has made himself known as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the scriptures teach, right, the Old Testament scriptures, as Paul would just call them the scriptures, right, just as the Bible teaches, he is a God of comfort, he is a God of mercy. And so this um, a repetition of comfort that Paul shares, this would have recalled for the people, right, that knew the scriptures, oh yeah, we know that God is a God of comfort because that's taught again and again in the scriptures. In particular, this passage reminds us of Isaiah 40. And it's actually interesting. This will probably come up again in this series. Second Corinthians has a lot of echoes of Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 55. That section of Scripture, there's all sorts of connections between those um, passages um, in Second Corinthians. It's like Paul was meditating on Isaiah 40 through 55 and was spending time in that as he was writing uh, to the Corinthian church. Right, but if you remember Isaiah 40, it's in Handel's Messiah. It's known well from that. It's a classic passage that we read during the season of Advent. It begins, comfort, comfort my people. And God is speaking to his people, in particular his people in exile. And he's telling them, you can be comforted. You can know my comfort, even though you have been removed from the promised land, even though you are in exile, even though you're in exile because you have rebelled against me, right? It's your rebelliousness that has brought you into exile, you can still know my comfort. And the comfort that the Lord promises in Isaiah 40 and elsewhere in Scripture to his people in exile is, I'm still with you. Yes, you have been brought out of the promised land, but I'm still with you. Even in exile, you are not removed from my presence. And so it's a comfort of presence, but also, you read in Isaiah 40 and elsewhere in Scripture, it's a comfort of a promise of deliverance. Yes, for now you are far from home, right? You are in exile, but I will bring you home. Right, you see that throughout the second part of Isaiah, this promise of deliverance, right? I promise I will not leave you there. I will bring you back. And so we see then Paul similarly making the same connections. God is a God of comfort. He comforts us with his presence now. So we have verse 4, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, right? We know the comfort of the Lord's presence he is with us, right? Even in affliction, even when we feel like we're in exile, right? When we feel removed from the Lord, he is still present with us. He does not abandon us. But it's also a comfort of salvation. It's a comfort of deliverance. And so in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. It's a comfort of hope in the Lord, right? He is present, he is with you in your affliction, but he will bring you out of that affliction, a time of deliverance is coming, a time of full comfort um, uh, uh, you can set your hope on. And so again, he's making the connection. This is the Lord we, we worship, right? The Lord who brings comfort with this presence, the Lord who brings comfort with this promise of deliverance, right? But also significant in what he's teaching them about the Lord is he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word Lord, I'm in Greek, kurios, can just mean master, right? I mean, you've heard it used that way, right? You know, my Lord, you know, to someone saying that, to a servant saying that to a master. And there's certainly a way in which, yes, he's saying Jesus is our master. He's our authority. But actually, the way Paul uses the term Lord in regard to Jesus is actually very similar to the way the Lord is spoken about, again, in the Scriptures. And in particular, if you look at Kyrios and how it's used in the Greek um, translation, of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which was commonly known at that time. I mean, Jason just spoke to, right? That you may know that I am the Lord, right? And then you look at the way Paul uses Lord in regard to Jesus, and you realize, oh, 
he's using Lord in the same way that the scriptures use it to speak about God. And so he's basically saying, yes, Jesus is a Lord. He is an authority, but he is the Lord. And so in his introduction, he's both, you know, holding up. God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And our Lord suffered, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And that's actually really important um, to, to what Paul is saying. Right? He wants to remind the Corinthian church, they shouldn't forget it, but it seems like they have, that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. That that is actually core to his ministry. He suffered on our behalf. Why is that important? Well, let's keep going. Uh, so this is what he says about the Lord, again, as he's introducing himself. But what is he introducing about himself? What is he teaching us about who he is? Paul. Right, well, one, we see in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. When I read that, I feel a little bad for Timothy. I'm like, man, all Timothy got was our brother, you know, and Paul's the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Um, now, Timothy was super important to Paul's ministry. We know that. We know how much um, Paul loved Timothy. Actually, when you read um, throughout his letters, right, he talks about Timothy as his beloved son. Um, but here he's actually wanting to make clear that there is a, a different calling, right? Timothy was, again, extremely important, but Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, right? He didn't choose to be an apostle, right? It wasn't a job description that he read and thought, I'm going to be an apostle. You know, that's what I want to do, right? I'll apply for that job. No, he was called by God, right? I mean, as you remember, he was persecuting Christians and the Lord called him and said, I'm going to make you an apostle. And so he wants to be very clear up front, this is my calling. And an apostle means a sent one. He is one who is sent by Jesus. He has been sent by them. And so again, If you're rejecting me as an apostle, you're rejecting the one who sent me. And don't do that, right? Don't reject Jesus. Because I'm an apostle of Jesus called by him. But he also makes clear in this introduction that he is one who has suffered. He's suffered affliction. And he's starting right away to tell them about suffering. And he's one who's experienced comfort in his affliction. So he suffered and he experienced comfort in that. So again, we have that first uh, paragraph and just the, you know, the beauty of the abundance of comfort that he's uh, received and the way that comfort overflows in the lives of others. Then starting in verse 8, he gets more specific. So if we read the first section, we're like, well, what does that comfort look like? Like what, what concretely does finding comfort in the Lord look like? Which is a question I often have when I read this. Well, we get some idea there in the, the second part of the, the reading. Um, In verse 8, when he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We are utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Most believe what Paul's probably speaking of there is during his time in Ephesus, so another area where he started a church, and we have the the book of Ephesians. And when he was in Ephesus, and this is in Acts chapter 19 and 20, um, uh, after he'd been there quite a while and had a very fruitful ministry, um, there are silversmiths, the silversmith guild, basically sort of rises up against Paul and begins to complain about him and, you know, other Christians that were preaching the gospel because they were telling people, turn away from idols. And the silversmith guild basically made money from making silver idols, right? That was a big trade in Ephesus. And they're concerned, right? These guys are telling people to give up their idols, and this is going to hurt our business. And so they make it sort of a citywide concern, and there ends up being a huge riot in Ephesus because of this. And again, you can read about it in Acts. Actually, in Acts, it doesn't say much about Paul's suffering, although in other places you read so much about his suffering. By that point in the book of Acts, it may just be, of course, Paul suffered, right? But we we can see how serious it was here. We despaired of life itself. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, right? Clearly, 
He didn't think he was going to make it out of Ephesus. He thought probably they would put him to death as part of this riot and part of their, again, resistance to his message. But what was the comfort he received? Well, one, at the end of verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Right? And so there was comfort in, oh, we are realizing in this suffering that we need to rely on God. And God raises the dead. Right? And so even if we were to die in this, God will still be at work. Right? We can still trust in him. He will not given us up. Again, a comfort of God's presence with them and actually an opportunity to rely on him even more, to lean into God even more um, at this moment. And that's a comfort, right? To realize, oh, I need the Lord, right? It's a comfort actually to be reminded. I rely on him. I'm not doing this in my own strength. I need his help, right? But also, uh, the second part of verse 10 there, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, right? In their affliction, they knew that they had hope. Again, they knew that it was not whatever happened to them in Ephesus, even as they despaired of life itself, the Lord is the Lord of resurrection, right? He will deliver them. And so they experienced comfort in their hope. That, you know, whatever happened, God would not forsake them. God would be at work in the midst of that. So Paul is communicating, I've known comfort in the Lord, but he's also communicating, I've known suffering in the Lord. Right? He's not like, well, this suffering was kind of strange that it happened. Um, you know, I can't believe that we suffer. That's so unusual. No, <laughs> what does he say in verse 5? For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. He's saying, this is part of it. Part of my calling, part of your calling, is we experience suffering in the Lord, right? To be unified with Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, often means suffering. Now, this is really important that he would begin his letter this way, and he would speak of his suffering this way, because we know that one of the attacks that was coming against Paul, one of the probably complaints either that these, you know, false apostles, they also call them super apostles, had against Paul, probably some of those folks that had rebelled against Paul was, why should we listen to that guy? How can that guy be an apostle of Jesus? How can he be anointed by Jesus when the guy's suffering all the time? Right? I mean, he's constantly, bad things are happening to him, right? We know there were serious trials that he went through in his ministry. We also know that it seems very likely he had, you know, physical issues, that he had maladies that he um, suffered from. He speaks of that a few different places. He speaks of a thorn in his side, which many think was some sort of physical ailment that he struggled with, right? He's dealing with rebellious churches like Corinth. And so these super apostles, right, were looking at Paul, and they were talking to the Corinthian church, and they're like, you listen to that guy? Look how much he suffers. If God's at work in him, right, I mean, if he's anointed by the Lord, he wouldn't be suffering so much. Right on top of that, then they would say, and look how weak he is. You know, he's not actually that impressive of a speaker, and he says all these things in his letters, but then he, he comes, and you have this painful visit with him. So they were trying to undermine Paul by basically saying, that guy suffers a lot, and he's weak. And so we would expect, if Paul's intent in this letter, if one of his intents is to, to put himself forward as their leader and to say, you need to trust me as a leader, maybe we'd think that he should have started the letter by saying, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, who started this many churches and who's, you know, prayed for this many people and a guy fell out of a window and prayed for him and rose him from the dead and, right, you know, I cast a demon out of a servant girl and listed all the amazing things he had done, all the miracles, Right? You know, I'm Paul. You know, I've done all these miracles. You call me weak? Look at all the strong and amazing things God has done through me. Look at all the people that should give thanks to me for all the churches I've started. And that's maybe what we'd expect how he would begin. But he begins instead by focusing on his suffering. Because again, he wants them to understand to be a servant of Jesus is to suffer. Right? If you're rejecting me as a leader because I've suffered, well, that's a real problem. 
because Jesus suffered, right, for you, right? You, this is part of ministry. This is part of a, a following of Christ. I mean, Paul knew right from the beginning. Jesus told him, right, um, uh, I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for me, right? So Paul knew his ministry would involve suffering. But Jesus also said to his disciples and says to us, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and come after me, right, and follow me, right? And when they heard that, right, they weren't thinking cross. I wonder what taking up the cross means, right? They understood, well, that involves suffering. It involves difficulty. And so in talking about his suffering, he's making it very clear this is part of union with Christ, right? And again, in one sense, we can say, of course it is, right? Isaiah 53, Jesus was a prophecy about Jesus, right? But speaks of the suffering servant who is familiar with suffering, who took our pain um, and our sins upon himself. And so, yes, Paul is saying, this is part of my ministry. It's part of my calling to suffer. Part of my calling is actually to be weak and to not be afraid of my weaknesses, so then, what is Paul speaking to them about who they are, right? What is the message then that we see right away? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be the church? Well, one thing, it means you should expect suffering. And we see that. He says, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. And then he goes on to say, um, the second part of verse 6, is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. He's saying, look, as you follow Christ you're going to experience these things as well. Maybe you won't experience a riot in Ephesus like I experienced, but you're going to experience suffering, right? Maybe it's suffering that comes from persecution. Maybe it's suffering that comes from sacrifice. Maybe it's just suffering that comes from living in a fallen world. But he's saying, you should expect this. So we see there, right, that his ministry, right, his defense of his ministry is actually for them. Because if they're rejecting him because he suffers and because he's weak, then that means they'll eventually reject themselves because they suffer. And when they experience weakness... And he doesn't want that to be the case. And I think for us, right, there's probably something we can take to heart here as well. Perhaps you at times have felt, actually, maybe if you're suffering in some way, experienced some sacrifice or experienced some difficulties, maybe you've had that sense a little bit of, okay, what am I doing wrong? Right? You know, why am I suffering in this way? It must be that there's some lack of faith maybe that I have, some lack of blessing that I'm not receiving, some rejection that I'm experiencing from the Lord. Now, again, there's some suffering that comes because of sin, right? So I don't want to deny that, right? If you're in jail for robbing a bank, okay, that's on you, you know? So, um, so there is, you know, sin that leads to suffering, and there is faithfulness that leads to a lack of suffering, right? And so I want to be clear, as we follow the Lord, oftentimes submitting to the Lord is, is relieving us of suffering. But there is suffering that comes with being faithful. That union with Christ often means suffering. And again, he's with us in suffering that comes as a result of just being in the world, is with us as suffering that comes as a result specifically of being a follower of Christ. I think sometimes we can actually feel shame in our suffering. And I've been kind of thinking through even this last year, you know, and again, I've been thankful for the caution that people have encouraged and the ways in which we've sought to, to be cautious as a community and sought to love one another and limit the spread of COVID. But I wonder if for some, even the, the talk about cautiousness, that, that again, has largely been good, has led a bit of a sense of shame, like, man, I better not be sick because then it's on me, right? I mean, we can feel that. I think some people in this past year that got sick felt a little bit, right, of shame, right? And maybe there's some lack of blessing. And again, I think that can happen in general sometimes when we struggle with different sufferings, right, that we can feel in ourselves there must be something wrong with me. Or even just in our weaknesses. We can feel like whatever I do, I have to cover up those weaknesses. I can't let anyone see those weaknesses because that must be a sign of sort of a lack of blessing, a lack of anointing from the Lord. 
we can take to heart what Paul basically says is, no, actually, you should boast in your weaknesses. That's coming. I'm in this letter. You should, God works through weaknesses. God works through our suffering and our sacrifices and our limitedness. And so that's one message, right, for the church that we can hear. And that's what's so dangerous about these false apostles and these super apostles. They're saying, right, you know, the victorious life looks like this. Paul's actually saying the victorious life in the Lord is, yes, a life of resurrection, but also a life of the cross and the way of the cross. But secondly, he's also saying, expect comfort, right? Yes, there will be suffering, but there also will be comfort. And in afflictions, in difficulties, you will know comfort from the Lord. And not only will you know comfort, but you'll actually be able to extend comfort. As the Lord pours out his comfort on you, that's comfort that you can share with others, right? It's a, an abundant comfort. That comes across so clearly in that first passage, right? It's abundant comfort. It's comfort that goes beyond yourself. And again, I think for our application for us is to say, yes, we can know comfort in the Lord. But do we think about comfort as comfort as something that we receive in order to give away? Right? Paul clearly, again, welcomes the comfort from the Lord. But he says, look, I'm comforted for your sake. Right? I, I, when I receive comfort, it's so that I can share it with you. And you share your comfort with me at the very end. I love the way this passage ends. You must also help us by prayer. Right? I've sought to share comfort with you. But you have to pray for us, right? I, I need comfort from you guys. I need your support. And so it's a multiple, it's a, a you know, multifaceted, right? It goes both ways, that comfort. And again, I wonder for us if it's thinking through, how do I think about comfort? And do I think about something that I receive in order actually to also give away, right? That I can be comforted, but I also can give comfort to others. I gave that little drawing prompt, you know, what do you think of when you think of comfort? And as I thought about it myself, I thought, I think of a comfortable chair with a really good book, a comforting cup of tea with me, which all those are good things. And so I'm, I'm for all those things. But I was just struck. Immediately my mind goes to me, right? Which, yeah, that's okay, right? I mean, we want comfort. But, but the vision here is, oh, this is a comfort that extends beyond me. God's comfort, God's hope, God's presence, right, overflows out of us into others. I think it's also an opportunity to think about how maybe are there ways I've sought comfort that actually is limiting in its comfort, um, to me, and maybe in the long run, it's actually harmful. Maybe harmful to those around me. Maybe in my desire to be comforted, I'm actually doing damage to those who need comfort as well. I uh, read an article this week. Maybe you read it as well. I feel like it was kind of making the rounds. Um, an article in the um, Atlantic uh, magazine um, uh, about um, alcohol and uh, sort of America's relationship with alcohol. It's fascinating because it kind of captures how America sort of has this binge um, and then, you know, um, uh, abstain from alcohol kind of relationship in its history. So there are seasons where alcohol abuse is rampant um, and then seasons where, you know, there's a lot of pushback against that and a lot of voices, you know, encouraging resistance um, uh, to alcohol or refraining or moderation. It's basically sharing how, you know, looking at that pattern, we're very much in a pattern of, um, of alcohol use and abuse. It says this, from 1999 to 2017, the number of alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. doubled to more than 70,000 a year, making alcohol one of the leading drivers of the decline in American life expectancy. And this is, during the pandemic, frequency of drinking rose as did sales of hard liquor. By this February, nearly a quarter of Americans said they drunk more over the past year as a means of coping with stress. That ending grabbed me, right? As a means of comfort, right? Understandable, right? It's not a surprising thing uh, to read that folks are seeking comfort, and alcohol does give, right? Alcohol abuse gives a, a limited comfort, um, a temporary comfort. But I was struck by, of course, those that abuse alcohol, 
not only are they in the long run, of course, hurting themselves, right, and even in the short run, but almost inevitably they're hurting those around them. This is a comfort actually that overflows into damage to others, right? And what a contrast that is to the comfort we have envisioned here, right? And it doesn't have to be alcohol. We can think of all sorts of ways that we can seek comfort. Maybe, again, harmless ways relatively, but perhaps even a little more selfish, right? Or, or ways that are truly sinful and damaging. So as we think about the Lord's comfort, I do think it's an opportunity to say, all right, Lord, where have I sought comfort in a way that is actually damaging to myself or limiting to myself and doesn't overflow? Can I actually seek your comfort to replace some of those wrong ways of seeking comfort? And so with that in mind, I actually, I, I want to um, end with prayer, and I'm going to skip around a little bit. I usually don't mess with the liturgy because we like the liturgical order. It's part of being Anglican. Um, but um, I want to go straight into our, our prayer of confession, and then we'll come back uh, for the, the prayers of the people. But I just was struck again, after this last year, I think it's been a year where that temptation to find comfort in things other than the Lord and at times unhealthy things has been a strong temptation. So I think just to have an opportunity to offer that to the Lord, to both pray that he would give us comfort um, and um, uh, we would know his comfort, but also to acknowledge ways in which we have wrongly sought comfort from, from other things and, and perhaps from harmful things. As we do so, I just want to encourage you as well, as we'll take a moment of silence to, to take a moment to think about when have I experienced the Lord's comfort in the past? When have I? Maybe how am I experiencing it now? So even as we're aware of sort of maybe false ways we've sought comfort, to also celebrate and give thanks for ways in which we've experienced the Lord's comfort and to celebrate those. Um, so let me pray and then we'll take a moment of silence and then Peter will lead us in the prayer of confession. Lord, we do acknowledge to you um, how easy it is uh, to, to seek comfort actually from things that not only don't really comfort us, but actually do us harm. So we want to acknowledge that to you, Lord, today. We want to pray for your help, that we would know comfort in you, that we in new ways would seek your comfort, Lord, that um, we would engage uh, with you, Lord. And we would ask, and our hope would be, Lord, that as we seek your comfort, um, it would overflow that we would be people who can bring comfort to others. Lord, I pray today, um, again, for um, uh, just a light to shine on us where we have sought false comfort, where we have um, sought maybe a, a selfish or a sinful comfort. We just pray, come Holy Spirit and, and show us and open our eyes um, uh, uh, to see what you want us to see this morning. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor as we pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done 
and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.